Athletic Brewing. I cracked open an Upside Dawn Golden Athletic Brew. And let me say this, no matter what you're looking for in a great non-alcoholic beer, the answer is always athletic. Great flavor, it's athletic. Award-winning styles, it's athletic. Huge variety, it's athletic. Fit for all times. That's a registered trademark, guys. Enjoy them anytime, anywhere, without ever slowing down your summer. Beach days, music festivals, swim meets, camping, late nights, early mornings, literally wherever summer takes you. And here's the best part to me, zero hangovers the next day. Mm -hmm. This summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer or brew you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company. Fit for all times. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. And I'm Flo Lloyd Hughes. And welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast, where every Wednesday, Flo and I pick out one article from all the brilliant writing available on The Athletic and put the authors under the spotlight. This week, Jay Harris, Brentford correspondent for The Athletic, will join us to talk about the Bees' impressive start to life in the Premier League and some of the fascinating ways in which the club have prepared for the big time, including scrapping their academy. Yeah, Brentford a really, really interesting team to talk about and I imagine a great team for Jay to cover as well. We're also going to talk about Ivan Tony, who one of his teammates has compared to Didier Drogba after the win at Wolves at the weekend. So plenty to talk about, but Flo, we'll start with the news that Marcus Alonso has decided that he isn't going to take the knee pre-game anymore. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I think his response is a little bit uh, basic, I have to be honest. Um, Obviously, realistically, no one thinks that taking the knee before a match is going to solve racism. Um, And so it's very naive for him to think that uh, he should stop now because nothing's changed. I also saw a quote someone shared because someone asked him, you know, have you talked to your teammates about your decision and he said no he hadn't actually talked to his teammates so I think that's probably the most frustrating thing is you know you want certainly you would like to think that players are supporting each other being allies for each other at a really important time um, and if he was going to make a decision perhaps he should you know put that to the forefront is, is being an ally for his teammates but I think a lot of this you know I'm a QPR fan and QPR decided not to take the knee before games um, because they felt like it wasn't doing enough in order to to change the reality, which is totally fair. Um, But I think this is slightly different because I think it feels like Alonso thought this was going to be the solution and because it's not the solution, well, I'm just going to stop doing it. Yeah, I'm quite quite baffled by it when I've heard players like Tyra Mings talk about why they do it and why it's so important and why they want to continue doing it every week. I think, like you said, it's quite naive from Alonso to, to kind of take a step away from it and, and decide not to do it anymore without talking to his teammates because I'm sure he'll have teammates that feel very passionately about it. I mean, I I sit in the whole end of Villa before the game and it largely gets applauded. Probably 95, 96% of, of the people in the ground are, are applauding the taking of the knee before the game. But there's still people that boo. So as long as there's still people that boo, for me, 
it has to continue and it should continue. Yeah, and it, it's about a combination of of taking the knee and and some tangible action. And I think we're we're yet to see maybe the, the second half of that. But like you said, it's still important to to make the point. And obviously, yes, I can understand lots of players. Um, you know, Wilf, Wilfred Sahar being one of them, who has said, you know, it's not enough for me. It is just a gesture, and that's completely you know c- completely understandable because he wants to see more change. But I do think in the case of Marcus Alonso, I would ask him, well, if you don't think that's if you think that's just a gesture and the gesture is in his words losing losing strength, then what are you doing? What are you doing as as a teammate, as a player, to do more than just a gesture? Because I think that's what's really important. And I would say ask the same with my club QPR is you know that that's really important if you if you feel that way but what are you doing what are you as a football club doing what are you, what are you asking the EFL to do what are the EFL doing I mean, we have to ask those questions of the yeah. leagues as well and the clubs um and i think if players feel like it's not enough um then you know they should be asking for more yeah still so much work to do Welcome, Jay. An absolute pleasure to have you on the pod. We will focus on your article that's called Inside Brentford's B Team Five Years On, a gamble that continues to pay off shortly. But first of all, quite new to the Athletic, a couple of months in. How are you finding it? I mean, Brentford must be a fascinating club to cover. Yeah, obviously, firstly, thanks for having me on, guys. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind two months for sure, covering Brentford's you know, first ever season in the Premier League has been absolutely incredible. Their first time in the top flight in 74 years, just being in that stadium as well, the first time they had a full capacity and they beat Arsenal 2-0, it was just an amazing experience. And obviously, I think everybody else who kind of follows Premier League football's eyes have kind of opened a little bit over the last few weeks to how good Brentford actually are. It wasn't just a one-off occasion. You know, they got a very good draw against Crystal Palace at a rock in Sohas Park. Did well against uh, a Villa, of course, and then obviously snatched a, a great winner, the Molyneux on Saturday. So it's been absolutely amazing to cover cover it so far, just full of positivity. And it's just an exciting club to be around. I mean, a lot of people will be surprised by Brentford's start. I'm actually not because I follow Brentford quite closely over the years and I know how good the setup is behind the scenes. I know, I know how organised they are. And to me, they, they just look like a team that, that's Premier League ready. I thought that before even the kickoff against Arsenal. They've got this set way of playing. They're defensively solid. As I say, everything behind the scenes seems spot on. I guess you're not surprised by the start. No, not at all. I think, obviously, you would have had a little bit of experience of, of watching Villa play Brentford over the last yeah. few years. Um, and obviously, they just missed out on promotion to the, the, the Premier League the year before when they lost in the player final to Fulham. So they were always in and around that conversation. And what I've kind of said to a lot of people is that if you look at Brentford's squad and who they bought in over the summer, they bought Frank Onyeka from Micheland, who has played in the Champions League. They bought Christopher Iyer from Celtic, who's played in the Europa League, the Champions League. I think it speaks volumes about the projects that Brentford have, that two players who are both 23 years old and have top-level European competition want to go to Brentford. They're obviously really convinced by what's going on down there. And that's just the new signings. That's before you get into, obviously, Ivan Tony, who's just, you know, keeps going up a level, a level, a level. You look at Christian Norgaard, you know, he was in a Denmark team that lost to England in the Euros. So... I don't want to say it was disrespectful for people to be a bit surprised by Brentford, but had they done a little bit more research, then maybe they wouldn't have been so so shocked at what they've achieved in the first few weeks. 
Jay, looking at your piece specifically about the BT model, which is is really growing in popularity, um, the club I support, QPR, recently announced that they launched one, and I know you you touched on it in your piece as well. That game that yeah. they played against each other, uh, in which, full disclosure, Brentford's BT won. Um, QPR, I guess, have gone a bit in a different approach because they're they're still keeping their academy, but. It, one of the big motivations behind this was was scrapping the academy and going fully into the B team. And, and some of that was down to the cost as well, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. So I think the two examples that are always kind of brought up when Brentford talk about the decision to, to move away from the academy was uh, Jan Carla Paveda and Josh Bahui, who went to Man City and Manchester United, respectively. I think they were 16, 17 at the time. They'd come to the end of their scholarships so Man City and Man United didn't need to pay any transfer fees for them. So Brentford basically got a pittance in compensation fees. And they've obviously changed dramatically as a club in the last decade. But five, six, seven years ago, if you're a 16, 17 year old player and you want to make the step up, you're, you're probably not going to stay at Brentford in full honesty. So internally, they just had a discussion about what the best method was for them. And I was speaking to the, the head coach of the B team, Neil McFarlane, and what he was so keen to stress is that Brentford basically have 40 players across two teams. And then obviously they've got the women's team on the side, but across the two men's teams, they basically got 40 players. Whereas if you look at, you know, Arsenal, Man United, Man City, they've probably got hundreds of young young players. And what are the actual chances that many of them are actually going to break into that first team? I read No Hunger in Paradise a few years ago and the odds of a player making it pros like 0.012%. All these clubs are doing a stockpiling talent. So I think Brentford just said, you know what? This is a better system for us. And they, they completely acknowledge that the B team is not for everybody. And in the time they've been running it, so five years, like you said, they've had 10 official promotions from the B team to the first team. The most notable one is Chris Meppham, who they then sold for 12 million to Bournemouth. Um, but of those 10 players, eight are still in and around the first team squad. So I think that kind of speaks for itself that it, it's worked. Yeah, and it, it's certainly sustainable in many ways because you're actually going to make a profit on some players, the Mepham one being an example, rather than just getting a little bit of compensation because of the EPPP, three P's, rules around it, which was really controversial when it came in and is still really controversial now because so many clubs do lose out. Um, I guess I wanted to look at the bigger picture as well before maybe we talk about Brentford specifically, but... When the COVID-19 crisis came along for football, there was talks again of this Premier League having B teams in the EFL, which I know clubs like Man City are quite keen on. A lot of clubs in the EFL are very much against it. And what I feel like Brentford's move and other moves, I think Southampton have a B team, obviously I mentioned QPR, kind of shows is... To me, a lot of EFL clubs have kind of been forced into doing this because they've been losing so much talent on the cheap that in a way, the only way to survive and not have your talent poached for nothing is to move into a B-team model because you're spending what Brentford, you mentioned, is spending £1.5 to run an academy every year and getting next to nothing in return. And it feels like they were the first to do it, but there's going to be so many more because in order to survive, EFL clubs are going to need to do this because they're just not getting any money for their talent. The football clubs at the top dominate, don't they? The top six dominate. They just have the financial resources to pluck players from whichever part of the country that they want to, even though they're not really supposed to. And they can just completely dominate. So like you said, for EFL clubs and clubs that are lower down the pyramid to survive, they have to be innovative. They have to think of, th- of ways to do things differently, which is where Brentford's beating came into it. And, and also 
part of the reason Brentford did that B team is because they think that if you're 18, 19 years old and all you're doing is Premier League, is playing in the Premier League 2 and playing reserve team football, that you're never going to develop. And Brentford's B team assistant coach, Sam Saunders, said to me that the favourite thing that he likes about Brentford's B team is that they play such a diverse range of fixtures. They played, I think, Bayern Munich's under-19s in the past. They obviously obviously played QPR the other week. They're playing Hampton and Richmond in the National League tomorrow. For them, that's a much more effective pathway than just stockpiling all this talent and playing Chelsea's under-23s and playing Man United's under-23s because all these players have been brought up to play possession-based, very attractive football. That's not the reality of what football is. Ivan Tony obviously dropped down into League One, League Two, and he said that's helped him to become the player that he is today. So all that Brentford are trying to do is look at this system that works for the top six clubs. That's great for you guys. But just because it works for you doesn't mean it works for us. I think sometimes English football gets caught up in that tradition and that sense of we've been doing this for so many years. Therefore, anybody that goes against the grain, oh my God, you're not allowed to do that. And like you said, Brentford, Southampton, QPR, they're just trying to find ways to, to level the playing field, I guess. Just a super quick one as well, Dan, before this turns into a QPR and Brentford podcast. Um, Mark Warburton, QPR manager, is someone who's really stressed throughout his whole time, I think as a coach across all the clubs he's managed, is he actually prefers to sign players that aren't just academy kids. He would prefer to sign a player that's had at least 100 appearances across the EFL, no matter what division, because they've kind of learnt the hard way. Um, They've experienced real football. And I think there's sometimes a bit of reputation around academy kids that they haven't had enough of a cutthroat experience playing real football. Um, Dan, I'll now invite you to the table before we just talk about QPR and, and Brentford for the next yeah, hour. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll come back in. Mark Warburton obviously had, 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 a, had a lot of time at Brentford, didn't he? So he probably picked up quite a lot from being at the, the Brentford Football Club and, and, and learning what was going on. What I was going to say is, Jay, why is it that, that Brentford can play? The, those continental teams, the European teams that you've talked about, what, what is it that allows that to happen then? So basically, because they're not out they're outside of the P, so the elite player performance plan, uh, they don't play in a set league. So therefore, they have the, the freedom to kind of dictate who they play. So like I said, they're playing Hampton and Richmond on Wednesday evening. They played QPR's B team last week. They played Southend recently, Aldershot. Um, obviously, before the pandemic, they went on tour a lot. So basically, they just have the autonomy to to decide that they want to play whoever they want to play. Yeah, I mean, everything you've said so far, it makes complete sense to Brentford, but also it would make sense to a lot of teams just having those 40 players that can move fluidly between the two as well. So players quite easily can come up from the B team and enter the first team arena. It makes complete sense. But to me, it sounds very, very European. When you were doing your research and looking around, is this the model that a lot of European clubs have? I don't know if it's partly inspired by the fact that obviously Brentford have a huge... um, Danish influence at the club, which yeah. is something I'm hoping to explore in the future. So it wouldn't really surprise me if that was the case. But admittedly, I didn't do that much research into, you know, your Real Madrid Bs and Barcelona Bs and stuff like that for the piece. But I would imagine that, as we've kind of touched upon before, Brentford is such an open club that they're very receptive of ideas from loads of different places. So it wouldn't be surprised me if that's where the kind of inspiration for it came from, looking abroad. Um, Jay, Robert Rowan was someone who was really key to the the creation of or, and success of this B team. He really sadly passed away a, a few years ago, just 28, and so loved by the club, so loved by the community in West London. So tell us about how important he was to this. I've had a few conversations with uh, 
with people about Robert and I've um I've actually got in contact with his with Suzanne, his his wife on a couple of occasions. I think the thing that kind of um stands out more than anything else is that people just said that this guy was very or Robert I should say, was so so ambitious and just had such a drive and not just in terms of the club but the people around him. So I spoke to Alan Steele, who's the B team's technical lead and assistant coach, and he said just Rob was just this incredibly warm person who I think we all need those people in life who kind of push you on and make sure that you're driven and make sure that you're constantly asking questions. And I think Robert came into Brentford at a time where they were undergoing this process process of, okay, we're currently in League Two, League One. How do we kind of push on and become a championship club? How do we then become a Premier League club? And who knows beyond that? And so he was so key in setting up this B team and kind of getting into the analytics and the data as we know that Brentford love to do and just kind of examining, okay, what's the best pathway for these players? And so I, I believe he was the technical director of the B team. That was his official his official title. So he was completely integral in the decision to to set it up along with Brentford's co-directors of football, Rasmus Sankerson and Phil Giles. So he, he was kind of at the forefront of it. And now I don't know if you know, but when B-team players make their first-team debut, their names get put on a board and it's called yeah. the Robert Rowan first-team debut board. So the very fact that they've set that up is a good indication of how even coming up to three years since he passed, he's still such an integral part of their story. And when you consider that they've had to do with the pandemic, they've had to do with Brexit, uh, Alan still, like I said, he said the biggest hurdle they've had to overcome in the last five years was was Rob's passing because it just took away the biggest puzzle of, of their journey. And I, I think that speaks volumes of what an incredible person he was. Yeah, it was a nice touch and there was a picture of the, of the board on, on your piece that accompanied it. And there was a lot of players on there already, wasn't there? Yeah, so I don't know what the exact number is because they measure it slightly differently. So if you're a B-team player and you make your first team debut, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've now graduated to the first team. So I think okay. there's probably at least 20 or so names on there. So I think one of the most recent ones is Finn Stevens, who's 18. He was at Arsenal originally. He went to non-league club Worthing at 16. He was playing senior men's football. Brentford picked him up. So I think he was one of the most recent players. He was on the bench against Aston Villa, funnily enough. Um, they've had Luka Rasic. They've had Jan Zemburek. Uh, Mads Bidstrup's another player who's I think's actually been promoted now. So it's probably about 20 or so names on there, but only 10 official promotions to the the first team over that time. They call them graduates, which I think is a nice touch. Moving forward, do you think the number of people graduating and getting on that board is going to go up or decrease? Because obviously we know there's a pressure now. Now they're in the Premier League, there's a pressure to stay there. And do you think that's going to mean that there'll be more of a motivation to look elsewhere and buy older talent? Because they've got, what, one of the youngest squads in the league? Or do you think they're going to stay core to their principles and realise that they should still be focusing on promoting from that BT? I'm really glad you've raised that point because it's something I kind of thought about before the piece and I did ask them. And on the one hand, they kind of acknowledge the fact that being in the Premier League kind of allows them to benefit from having a few more resources. They can pick up a couple of players that maybe weren't within their reach a few years ago. Um, but then they also said... At Brentford, our aim has always been to develop Premier League players. Yes, now that we are in the Premier League, of course, that job's become a lot harder, but we never wanted to develop players that were going to be at the championship level. We were always aiming for the top. And again, I think that speaks volumes of what Brentford are doing as a team. Um, I got to speak to a few of their players recently and Nathan Shepard, who's a Wales under-21 international goalkeeper, 
he, he's been in, in the B team setup for about three years now. And he said the biggest difference for him since he joined and where it's at now is that a few years ago, they joined the B team and then they progressed to become youth internationals. Where he said now, Brentford seem to be able to buy players who already are youth team internationals. So the example from this summer would be Matthew Cox and Daniel Oyegok. So Daniel came from Arsenal and they both of those players were already England under 19 internationals. And also there has been a shift from, I think when the B team first started, you probably had quite a large number of players from Europe, especially Scandinavia. But now with Brexit, I think they're kind of having to tweak their approach so that they're picking up more English talent. So they'll definitely stay true to their principles, but there is an acknowledgement that it's going to be harder for the coaches and the players themselves to make that step up. But that's a challenge they're, they're clearly prepared for. Is there any form of age limit to, to it, Jay? Like, is there a, an age range for the B team? Or literally, could, could it be any age? The youngest player is 17. Yeah. And the oldest player... No, tell a lie. There are no 17-year-olds at the moment because one of them's just turned 18. But I think the youngest... The youngest, they probably go 17 because obviously it's a little bit difficult buying players that are 16 years old. Obviously, it's a bit topical at the moment as well. Um, and I think the oldest is 21. Okay. I honestly think it's it's a really good system and Brentford are so innovative and they've obviously utilised it so well. You touched on, on Brexit there. Is there any other concerns around around Brexit with it? Because there's been problems with fixtures because of COVID. Will that impact it in any way? Yeah, so obviously a big appeal of Brentford's beating was the fact that they went on tour. So my, my colleague at the Athletic, Dom Firefield, he actually went with a B team two years ago to France and he got to watch him play um, Bordeaux and a couple of other teams. And that was a huge appeal for these young lads. You know, you're not just travelling up and down the UK playing Premier League two sides like we discussed earlier. You, you really get tested. And so I think there's hope that from the new year when the ridiculously confusing rules on where you can travel and stuff like that hopefully ease a little bit um, that they'll be able to kind of go abroad again because one thing that was quite interesting is that the difficulty with um, the pandemic for example if just, just quickly go on that with COVID bubbles etc cetera, etc cetera, because they travel by coach so much even traveling long distance mm, in the you UK have to get like four coaches or something mad isn't it yeah exactly even if the players want to stop off to have a toilet break on the M25 or whatever they ha they'd have to do like a risk assessment form and yeah. bubbles and things like that which is just crazy so um yeah they're hoping that travel's going to open up again and they'll be they'll be touring again before you know it fascinating stuff this is the athletic football podcast and we've still got plenty left to discuss with jay including the new didier drogba so stay with us we'll be back after this short break looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Tony on a short run-up, sends Jose Sarr the wrong way, and Brentford are in front. Two seasons ago, you're in League One, playing for Peterborough. You're doing pretty well in the Premier League now, aren't you? Not too bad, not too bad. Always could do better, you know? Do you think the pundits and the experts, so-called experts, be revising their predictions for you this season now? Um, well, listen, everyone has their opinion. It's not factual, so it, uh, it's up to us to do our job and uh, come in in the season. Hopefully we are top of the league. <laughs> <laughs> top, mate. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Jay, um, you've been obviously covering Ivan Tony since the start of the season. You actually mentioned before we jumped on on the podcast that he was the first person you interviewed when you took up the job. And since that game against Wolves, I think people who weren't looking at Ivan Tony seriously have woken up. Um, I think most most people in the football world had kind of realised how good he he is, but he is really just jumped at this opportunity in the Premier League with with both hands and I'm sure a lot of teams are looking at him already but you mentioned that he's been talked about in the same in the same breath as Didier Drogba obviously a Premier League legend um so what is it about Ivan Tony that makes him so special I think um when that Drogba line went up over the weekend, a few people were uh, a bit bemused by it. But supposedly one of his own teammates kind of said that at full time and it was kind of picked up on, on camera. So that's where it came from. But I think if you look at Tony's numbers in relation to the goals he scored last year, every single goal he scored came in the penalty box. So if you just look at that and analyse that, you're probably only going to think that this guy only really comes to life in the 18-yard box and that everything else he doesn't really get involved with. But that couldn't be further from the case. Everybody saw the warning signs against Arsenal. He didn't have a single shot in that game, but I think everybody knows he was a huge part of the reason why they won that game because Ben White couldn't handle him at the back. Pablo Mari couldn't handle his, his aerial presence at the back. So that's where the links to Drogba have come from because Drogba was such a, a physical presence up front. He had this great power to disrupt opposition defences. He was so great at, you know, making space for, for Lampard, Robin, Damien Duff. I'm sure there's more recent wingers than that, that but that's exactly what Ivan Tony does. He's already created four chances for Brian and Bumo this season. Um, against Brighton, Brian and Bumo should have put one of those away, but it's done now. That game's gone. So... He just has this incredible ability to link up play, to hold the ball up very well. And he's also very, very good going back defensively as well. One of the kind of highlights for me that kind of sums him up was against Wolves on Saturday. Uh, Daniel Podence, you know, whipped this cross into the box and Tony was in his own box, cut it out, cleared it. And this was when Brentford were down to 10 men. So it's every kind of aspect on the pitch he's so willing to get involved with, works really hard. And obviously at 25... He's probably quite senior for that Brentford team, to be honest. And that's what Thomas Frank has said before. Like, he's just such a leader to that group. Even though he's not the captain, he really does lead by example. And that, that again, speaks volumes of how important he is. Yeah, I watched him for 90 minutes at Villa Park. And although I didn't like his celebration in front of the whole end, he did <laughs> He did occupy two hands Abian concert for 90 minutes. So he obviously he scored a goal. But he, he occupied those two and created so much space for the, for the other players. And Brentford on the counter looked really, really dangerous. There's just something a bit different about him, isn't there? I mean, even his penalty walk-up. He's just a player that's so, so different to other strikers out there and other strikers in the Premier League. One of my favourite things about Tony is he just exudes this extreme confidence. Yeah. Obviously, when I've spoken to him, he was so friendly. But this is a, this is a player who, who was at Newcastle six years ago. It didn't work out. And that's even the making or breaking of a player. 
He's dropped down to, to League One with Peterborough. And we've spoken about the importance of players cutting their teeth at a lower level. He's come up. And so he knows how to, to be a little bit, not dirty, but like you said, to occupy constant to Enzebi, to make it uncomfortable. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. To make it uncomfortable for them. If you play against Tony, you are not going to get an easy game. He was the fourth most fouled player in the championship last year. But I also think, I don't know the exact number, but I think he also gave away a lot of fouls as well because, you know, he's going to push you around. He's going to give you a little nudge and stuff like that. And... We like that, don't we? We like that. We like players that have an edge. We saw it with Diego Costa. All right, he maybe went over the <laughs> over the line sometimes, but um, defenders don't really know what to do with him. And I'm very excited to see him come up against Virgil Van Dijk this week. And I think that's going to be a, a, a fascinating contest. Yeah, I don't want to be disrespectful. I'm, I'm really not trying to be disrespectful because, as I've said, I, I really, really respect Brentford <laughs> and everything they've done. But we've seen players leave Brentford. Obviously, Ollie Watkins. Who is who Tony ended up replacing? He ended up at Aston Villa playing the Premier League. Now Brentford are in the Premier League and he, he's playing week in, week out. Do, do you see him staying at Brentford? Do you think he'll end up elsewhere? What What's his ceiling, do you think? Uh, I think, obviously, in that first conversation I, I had with him for the Athletic, I said to him, What's your kind of. Well, he doesn't reveal what his goal target is each season. I bet it's So hard. I said, Okay. So I said, 40. Okay. Yeah. I said Ollie Watkins in his first season in the Premier League got, was it 13, 14? 14, I think, and I, yeah. And I said, I said Bamford got 17. So do you want to match those guys? And he said, no, my, my, my target's higher than that. I think that's a big statement of intent for a player, you know, playing his first season in the Premier League. So if he gets anywhere near those numbers, then I think unfortunately for Brentford fans, there's going to be huge talk about him, him being linked with, with other clubs. I think you're going to see a little bit more over the course of the season, him getting compared to Harry Kane, just in terms of being quite a physical um, striker, but who's also very comfortable at dropping deep and having runners that go beyond him and playing them in. So I think, you know, if he if he's a match winner in a game against a Man United, a Man City, a Liverpool, or whoever it is, you're going to get whispers about, is he going to go to England? And then inevitably, off the back of that, you are going to get people saying, you know, he should be playing at, in European competition for a top six club or something like that. So I think it depends where, where Brentford end up this year. Um, and it also depends if he can hit that, that very lofty target he's set himself. Jay, to kind of go, come full circle as well, I suppose Brentford have the best of both worlds here because they're showing with the B team that, they can invest in and get some homegrown to an extent talent, although there's there's international players within that B team set up. But they also their scouting network is so good when they're recruiting from the lower leagues. So what they're really trying to do is evolve this idea that everyone has to be grown through an academy system and and really focusing on a bit more of a holistic approach, which is making sure players are ready to play football at the highest level. So even if it's not Brentford that's going to benefit from them playing. I mean, they might benefit financially, which is obviously great for them. But they're actually, in the long run, hopefully creating better footballers for the whole pyramid, which I think is really important because, like you said, Ivan Tony, it could have been a completely different story for him. And it is a different story for so many players up and around the country who don't make it. So I think it's really important that they take this approach, right, which is let's try and give people the best opportunities to, to succeed. Yeah, I think, so Rasmus Ankerson, who's one of the club's co-directors of football, has said quite a few times, 
that it's impossible to predict which 16-year-old footballer is going to make it. There are so many different factors to, to take into account. You know, we've all seen players over the years. Someone in the athletic office the other day mentioned the name Gail Kakuta, who is supposed to be an absolute world beater. And I, I couldn't tell you where he plays. And I think he's, I don't even think he's 30 yet. It's impossible to kind of tell which way a player is going to go. There's so many things you have to factor into account. And I think one thing with players like Tony, etc. Players mature at different ages. I've spoken to, to members in that B team that have said, I've been at other clubs before where I was 17, 18 years old and it didn't work out for me because I didn't have the right attitude. But where Brentford are also so focused on developing them as human beings, it's allowed them to kind of grow into themselves and that's where they then become so good that they, whether they stay at Brentford or they move into a different club. And that's what I also like about Brentford, this acknowledgement that the B team coaches both said, this isn't about developing players just for Brentford's style of play. This is about making sure that wherever these boys land, whether it's in the Premier League with another club, whether it's with Brentford, whether it's in League Two, whether it's non-league football, whether they give up football altogether, that we've developed them as human beings and we've prepared them for wherever they end up. And I think more clubs should probably take that approach because like you said, the chances of these boys actually getting to the top levels is so, so slim. And one thing that was really interesting, this might be slightly off topic, I mentioned earlier that Daniel Oyagok joined the club from Arsenal this summer and the first game I watched him was against Southend who've just gone into National League. And let's just say the ball was up in the air for the majority of the game and a few of the B team players looked a little um, perplexed as to what to do with it. And I've spoken to Daniel since and he said that game was an eye-opener. He said, I've never experienced that before. And he said, you know what? I loved it for that exact reason because that's real football and that's something they don't teach you at academy level. And again, the coaches said, Daniel did struggle in that game. And that's exactly why we pick those games because he's never going to learn. He's never going to become an, um, the amazing defender that he could become if we don't expose him to that, which I thought was, was really nice to kind of tie everything that I'd discovered with the B team altogether. Yeah. Just before we finish and I ask you where you think Brentford realistically can aim for this season, I was just thinking whilst we've been doing this podcast, I don't think any club in the country has done better transfer business in terms of resale than Brentford in the last five years. And you think of some of the players that have, 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 they've bought for cheap and that have gone on and left, gone on and left, sorry. So Ben Rama, Malpai, Watkins, Konza. I'm definitely missing other players out like Metham. There's, there's yeah. just so, so many that the, the club has done incredible things. So one, one thing that the club have said to me, is that what? Well, one, I'll get into the recruitment bit afterwards, but one thing they're really interested in is making sure that a player hits their optimum fitness level. And they said they don't believe a player will ever, you know, fulfill their potential if they don't hit their optimum fitness level first, which I thought was quite interesting. But then also, their scouting network is just so extensive. It's something I'm trying to, to get into a little bit more and trying to find out a lot more about the technical aspects of they it. They probably don't want to tell but, you. <laughs> well, there you go. Don't they give they, away they the secrets. Yeah. They can't give away the recipe. Um, but it's just about making sure that we don't overlook players. There's such a tendency to think, you, you know, you look at when West Ham bought Jared Bowen. I thought Jared Bowen probably deserved a move to a Premier League club before then. Yeah. Because I'd seen how good his movement was in the box when I'd seen him play a couple of times live. But sometimes this perception in the Premier League is that, or oh, if they're not, if they're not from a, a top tier division, you can't be spending more than 10, 15 million pounds on them. And that's where Brentford are trying to exploit the market. They understand that transfers are just so silly. And sometimes if you're just willing to kind of look in slightly different places, you can find players that are so, so, so good that are performing well above 
what's perhaps expected of them, but they're just in a division where they're not seen very often. Obviously, Kante was at Cannes, went to Leicester and was amazing. And I think the the best example I could give you for Brentford is Vitaly Janot, who they signed from, I think it's Bochum in the German second division a year ago. And he is absolutely amazing. They signed him for £500,000. He started every Premier League game for them this year in midfield. What's he worth now? £15 million at least, probably more. They were able to identify players by just looking in a slightly different area and it's worked for them immensely. I, th- I think other clubs could benefit from that. But yeah, go for it, Flo. No, I was just going to say, I think it's, I mean, it's just the beginning of this conversation around B teams, to be honest. I touched on the fact that lots of Premier League clubs won the EFL to start putting B teams in across the division. Read up doing the research for this this pod that actually Rangers and Celtic have now got B teams in the Lowland Leagues in, in, in Scotland and they've got their, they're there for one season and it's a bit of an experiment. They want them to be actually in the, I think, third tier of Scottish football. That Lowland League is the fifth tier. So, I mean, watch this space. I think so many, so many more clubs have been going for a B team because they've seen how successful it's been and especially for EFL clubs that need the money that this is this is the way forward really um so jay thank you so much for for chatting to us um really really interesting to hear about it and um yeah i'm sure we'll be chatting to you about it again in the near future we probably could have done another hour on brentford to be fair they're, they're <laughs> such a such a fascinating club where are they going to finish just quickly before you go joe i don't think they'll get relegated no. um uh, there's a stat going around on Opta and I really don't want to jinx them. But basically, so they're the 14th team to get promoted to the Premier League that have eight points, at least at least eight points after their first five games. All the other 13 teams have avoided relegation that season. So fingers crossed I've not just absolutely jinxed them, but they're in a good position. But having said that, their next three games are Liverpool, West Ham away, and then I think it's Chelsea at home and then Leicester at home. So that could be a, a, you know, a big test for them. Yeah, well, they quite easily could be unbeaten so far this season, so I wouldn't bet against them in any of those games. Thanks ever so much, Jay. Been great to talk to you. Absolute pleasure. Cheers, guys. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? 
Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. So Flo, let's chat about some of the other stuff that's been going around on The Athletic and probably the biggest one and the one I've read most recently is Alan Shearer meeting Andy Carroll and having a chat to him about the last few years and his career and how it's gone in general. Again, a bit like the Jack Wilshere one, really, really interesting piece, learned a lot from reading it. The, the biggest takeaway from me was that Andy Carroll's now obviously looking for a new club, wanting to still play at as high a level as, as he can without a club at the moment. I didn't actually realise he'd been fit for the whole season last year. That really surprised me because you did see him come on in games and have have an impact. He, he does make a difference when he comes on just by the nature of the way he plays the game. But I just assumed he'd been been injured because he didn't play that much last season. But actually, he was fit for the whole season pretty much. I think it was two or three games he wasn't available for. Obviously, people have spoke to me. My parents have spoke to me. Um and said, oh, what's the plan? Do you want to stop? Do you want to this? And no, I don't. I, I think, especially after the last two years, I find it really frustrating not playing and being available. I feel like I've got so much like that I need to do. I need to, I need to go and play. I need to score goals. I need to win games. I need to... I feel like I've got a lot to give to other players as well, younger players and, um, and help, help a team. I just want to be able to be part of a team and help a team. The kids still think I'm going to sign it like Man City and Barcelona and stuff, which um, we all know not going to. It's not going to happen, but they're still uh, pushing me on anyway to get a club, and and it's what I want to do as well. You know, I want to play. I want to play in front of my family and and and, and win games, and and that's that's what every footballer wants. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And it's the same really with the Jack Wilshire one, like you said, that how a reputation of a player can just overtake any almost facts at the end of the day, that yeah. reputation about them. And Jack Wilshire was saying the same, like he was fit for the majority of the season, hadn't had an injury in ages and, and just wasn't getting picked up or played. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting for us to talk about this on the backdrop of Brentford's B team and this approach to wanting to ensure academy players and, and footballers don't drop out of the game and, and can succeed in, in, in the best way possible. I mean, prime example of, of Andy Carroll, I'm really surprised no one has picked him up he he touched on the piece about how he had some conversations with Reading um, and I'm really surprised that a championship club haven't approached him or you know obviously I don't know the ins and outs of his his wage bill but he would he could do a job you know there's a lot of players in the championship especially where you, you know, you can have a lot of success if you're a big physical presence. And he talked about in the piece with Shearer that he's had to become that essentially now because of his body. He's had to adapt mm. his game and become just a, a nuisance in the box. Um, and you can't, you know, the movement's not there anymore. But there are so many clubs in the championship. I think League One would probably a bit be a bit step too far down. But there's so many clubs in the championship who would really benefit from a player like that. And I know he mentioned he wants to be close-ish to his family, so hasn't necessarily entertained too many um, deals potentially too far away from home. But it's just, it's a really interesting one. And, and maybe doing this will help him perhaps get back onto people's radar and almost tell his own version of events, isn't it? Being at home with my family, my friends, and, and being number nine for Newcastle, I think it was it was everything. Thinking back, I, 
I kind of really didn't appreciate um, what I had and what I could achieve. I think it was just, I'm from Newcastle. I, went, uh, I see my mates, I see my mum and dad. And then I went to Liverpool and it was a complete different change. And I was still trying to live that life where I was in Newcastle and it, it, it was completely different. The whole, everything was different. And I couldn't really get the grips of it. I was like 21, 22. And My other takeaway was that you, you can make bad moves. Things were going so well for him at Newcastle the, the first time round and that move to Liverpool was just never right, all rushed. I, I mean, Newcastle accepted the 35 million, but it never felt like the right move for Andy Carroll at the time. And I guess if he could turn back time now, he'd have stayed where he was. Yeah, and he talks about, to Shearer, about how the Liverpool style of play didn't suit him. He didn't really want to move and suddenly he was on Mike Ashley's helicopter on, on the way to Liverpool. So... It's it's such a difficult one, and it happens all the time in football, where where yeah. players make a move whether they want to or not, and it just doesn't work out. And you always think about that kind of sliding doors alternative, where where this player might have been if they'd stayed there, and what could he have have achieved with Newcastle if that hadn't have happened? You, you obviously just don't know, but it's really interesting to think about that, and it's also a shame because. In, in many respects, that move to Liverpool could have been a huge opportunity for him. And he did win, he'd won trophies with them. So it wasn't like a completely wasted experience. But obviously, as a footballer, he didn't fulfil his potential or play a big enough role like he would have wanted to do. I felt also when I did come on for the five minutes, 10 minutes or whatever it was, I, I did feel like I had an impact. 10 more minutes and I, we would have done something in the game. Get put me on a little bit earlier, we would have done something because the game changed, the dynamics changed the game every time. When I did come on and we had chances and we Tottenham, we won, we drew 1-1, we were getting beat battered the whole game. We got a pen, obviously, you're looking back now, it probably wasn't a pen with the handball, but it, it was it was through a, a long ball to me. And, and, and you know, things change in the game. I feel when I when I go on, I'm, I'm different to a lot of players out there and the dynamics do change through a game. And I just feel I've got, I've got that to give. So yeah, a little audio teaser for you there. And remember, you can read that article of Alan Shearer talking to Andy Carroll, plus all Jay's great writing about Brentford as well, and much, much more by subscribing today for just £3.33 a month. To take advantage of that offer, just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. So that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Flo for joining me as ever. And thanks again to Jay as well. Really, really fascinating chat with him about all things Brentford. Thanks to you guys at home as well for listening. Remember to hit follow and leave us a review if you're feeling generous and keep an eye out for tomorrow's episode. Have a great day. The Athletic.